Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three of Career Diaries by Elamed, the podcast dedicated to talking about exceptional careers in the medtech industry. And today, I am super, super excited to have with me our first female guest on the show, Erin McEachran. Erin is the commercial VP for Europe for Nuvasive. So Erin, thank you for being on the show. And can you maybe start by telling us a little bit more about what you do? Sure. So so my name is Erin McEachran, and I'm the commercial vice president for Nuvasive. Uh, I have spent about 15 years in med device world, and I work for Nuvasive currently, which is a, a spine um, neurosurgery company that works on implants, and we're very specific to the sector. Okay. Specific yeah. in which way? So we are the, the sole sole source for spine. So we are one of the we're the top market leader and we supply implants to surgeons. So we work in anterior surgery, um, we work in scoliosis and we uh, have a lot of sales force around the globe that delivers best in class uh, solutions for, for patients with spine problems. Okay, really interesting. Yeah. So you yeah. said that you've been working in this industry for um, fifteen years? That's right, 15 years. Okay, so I mean, a question that I love to ask everyone is like, let's go all the way back. Um, And and so like, how did you get into this industry? Yeah, actually, it it, um, it happened kind of two ways. I think the the first way was when I was younger. I had a I had a disease in my hip, um, and I was a very active child. So I loved sports. And when I was about nine years old, I had to have a pretty serious orthopedic surgery, um, which I was out of school for about a year. So through that, I was really grateful. Um, I wrote my orthopedic surgeon a letter uh, when I was about 16 to say thank you to them. But but basically, I was kind of enamored by my process as a child and how fast that I healed and how I was able to go back and be active again. So I think I I have a lot of gratitude for what surgeons do and what good GPs do. And um, then I went to continue to be active in my sport and go to university and and throughout that process, I, I just had a kind of a deep respect for, for medical devices and, and good surgeons and what, what, you know, when you see the right person, what that can do for a patient. And so I think it organically happened in the back of my mind. I, I really wanted to be a part of that. And, and that's how I, I got here. So, so would you say it, like at the age of nine, you decided, you know, um, that's where I want to go? Or was it more kind of just like it developed in the direction it developed in the direction. I think. Um, I think so, probably not consciously. I knew at nine, but I think I was. I had some gratitude for what happened to me as a patient, and so when I went to choose my courses at university, I think I was pulled in the the human physiology chemistry direction. And then my when I took my first job, obviously that was a chance, and and I realized when I got into the OR, the theater that even though it was a little bit scary for the first time, I realized like what important work was happening there and I, I wanted to continue to be a part of it. So I would say that the momentum built, mm-hmm. but um, I, I certainly at a young age had appreciation for, for what, what these um, healthcare prof- professionals do. It's so, it's so interesting how kind of like experiences that you have like at a young age can essentially just shape shape your life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I didn't even know it then, but, but um, looking back, it makes sense. Yeah. And so yeah. What, did you, what did you study? I studied physiology and uh, a minor in biochemistry, and I, I actually, I think I've always had a like a need to learn and uh, be involved in holistic growth, whatever it is. So I, I kind of was one of those people that I didn't know exactly what subject I wanted to do at university, and I just picked some. But I, I really was into into a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. What would you? I mean, what would be your advice there as well? I think because a lot of people. Um 
at, at that kind of age, I was one of them. They don't necessarily know what direction, you know, they want to take their career in. And, and, you know, what advice would you, would you give to people that maybe don't know ultimately where they want to end up in terms of, should they go to university? Should they take some time out? I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I actually think it's a really good topic. I think there is a lot of pressure on kids these days to know exactly what their future is going to be like before it even starts. And I was I was lucky I was in a sport that I was really wrapped up in. And so I didn't feel maybe as much pressure. But then I went to university a little bit older. And when I when I showed up for my first class, I felt <laughs> I felt really out of place. And then I spoke with other students and every everyone that I spoke to seemed to have it perfectly mapped out where where I certainly did not. And and I would say a few things. Um, number one, I think it's really important to just grow, go to school and do what you love and the right things will come out of that and choose a subject that you're passionate about and be open to other things along the way. And I think when you do that, the right career always comes. Mm. Um, and I think also not to, to, to diversify or, or to, to go on a singular pathway too early because the, the world's a beautiful, big evolving place. And um, I actually did my MCATs and I wanted to go to medical school and whilst I didn't do that, I, I kind of am in a parallel pathway of, you know, science and, and working with surgeons every day. So sometimes I think we don't really know how things will work out and we need to trust the universe that um, if you do what you love and you, you continue to grow and learn, that's really what's important at that age and, and not um, laying a foundation that you're going to be locked into for the rest of your life. I think the society right now we have we have you know multiple careers and and I think it's important to be balanced and just continue to love what you're doing and learn and grow and the the rest will will turn out in a positive direction if you do that explain that concept more about multiple careers what do you mean by that well I think like a and and I'm not an expert but I I do believe when you like older generations used to do one thing for 25 years or they'd have a job at one place for 40 years and then they'd retire I think as the millennials, and I'm certainly not a millennial, but but as I'm trying to manage them and understand and learn how how their talents can be used in really exciting ways, I think you see people when you're interviewing coming in with, I did something for one year here, and you know I didn't like it, so I moved. So I what I guess what I'm trying to say is the world is I think adapting faster, and with with um, there seems to be more freedom to do different things, and and I think you know someone my age may have a career for 40 years or they might do do different steps and and I think it's more accepted than it used to be Mm. so so just coming I know we're kind of pinging all over the place but I find this topic around like hiring millennials I'm a millennial by the way but I'm like an older (laughs) an older millennial so I don't like totally now I'm intimidated (laughs) (laughs) but um you know, there's a lot of talk about millennials and job hopping and, and um, this um, this idea that, you know, I mean, even sometimes I look at CVs when I'm hiring for my team and it's kind of like, well, you only did two years here, three years there. You know, it, you kind of approach it as like, is that a big, a big risk to hire somebody mm-hmm. that maybe hasn't got such like a you know, hasn't sat in in one role for, yeah, five plus years. I mean, what would your advice be on on hiring people that maybe by the look of their CV haven't stayed for many, many years in in one specific role? Is it an advantage? Hmm. Good question. I'm still figuring this out uh, with, with, with all the millennials. And I think it's important as an employer to really press to dig in and understand it. I would say two things, though. I, when I hire somebody, no matter what range they are, 
I look for resilience. Mm -hmm. So where I get concerned is if I see a pattern of maybe giving up or, 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 or a pattern of someone who's really resilient to finish things off and to do good, do a good job. Um, so I try and look at themes and then I, I'm really big on making sure that I talk to references and that I think it's, I think there's so many interests that one can have, especially when you're younger. I encourage that. And, and I will say I'm, I'm far away from being a millennial, but even in my own career, I've had many different jobs. I, even though I stayed within a company for 12 years, I had a different job every 18 months. And sometimes when I interview, um, some of the feedback that I get is like, well, why did you change your job so much? Like you were marketing, then you were sales. You know, do you, did you not know which one you liked more? And, and really, I like both of them equally. And uh, because I took those opportunities in different geographies and, and different business units, I really do believe I got out of my comfort zone, which, which was painful at times when I wasn't in it. But that actually really enabled me to, I think, fast track my growth and my learning. And um, I think it's important to to view the world in that way that like you want to continue to grow. So I'd probably try and diagnose why the changes, but then understand them and then make a make a good decision. So coming back to your story, so we spoke about what you studied. So talk, talk me through how you went from um, uni into mm-hmm. becoming VP of commercial for a major region at a major medtech company. Yeah. So actually, right out of university, I was looking for a job, and I was fortunate. Um, I worked for Stryker in, a, in an associate role, and we, I got at a really young age, I got a really great job to just go around the ORs and be a product expert. And it was, we had a lot of accountability at a young age, and it was just a great job where I felt like I actually learned about five or six years of, of information in one year. Wow. And I got to see different geographies, got to go in lots of different ORs, and I realized like this was the right place for me. So the the one thing I will say is that that experience in different with different people, with different managers, I mean, I got to spend time with some of the best salespeople and some of the best marketing people early on. And I think that really shaped me. And And one thing I will say is that as a young female, I was lucky to see how different people had their own authentic styles. And so even though I saw, you know, 20 great, amazing, incredible sales leaders, I got to say, I wanted to kind of pick a few of the great things that I saw every day. And so I think that job really, really um, was, was very impactful on me, even though, you know, I was doing a lot of grunt work. It really helped me to understand that, like, you don't have to be a certain mold to be a commercial leader, to be a marketeer, that you, as long as you are accountable and as long as you built trusting relationships um, and you were strategic, that you could be successful. And I, I'm, I think that was really an important lesson early on. So, so I did take, um, I did a marketing job and then I went to sales for about four years and then I got into some leadership jobs in a new geography and I moved over to Europe. Um, then I moved, uh, to be a marketing director across the region and then moved to the U S to do kind of, um, a new robotic project for orthopedics. And, and it was a recent M and a that, that they did. And then I moved back to the region to kind of run a P and L, which was always something that I really wanted to do. Um, and, and that's kind of where I am now, now in my current role. And I really love having P and L management experience because I find, um, you know, if you look young or you're different or you're diverse, that that's a job that you can really rely on your performance. Um, you can really rely on your top line results and your bottom line results if you're meeting your operating margin expectation. 
but also you can, if you can do those two things and if your team is engaged, then I really believe it's a very um, basically objective job. And so I really like that about the commercial leadership position. And, and I think you have a lot of freedom as long as you can do those three things well. So I think that's really interesting, especially the the, the point on kind of like gender and, and certain role types, because I think, you know, um, talking, you know, about marketing and sales, you know, obviously mar- marketing is, is, is a role that classically is perceived as, you know, sometimes more of a female, I'm saying mm-hmm. it with my you know, in inverted commas, um, female type role. Um, and, and, but then I find it really interesting that like you've made actually this, this transition into, again, in inverted commas, what is typically seen as more of a, you know, or tends to be, if I look at kind of like the data um, from outside, tends to be more male-led, you know, um, commercial leaders um, or, you know, leaders of regions. Having lived in both types of roles, What's the difference and what does it take to be able to make that transition? Yeah, I think it takes a few things. Um, and, I, and I believe what you said is true. I actually believe it's challenging when you're in a role where there's more not black and white criteria on objectives. And so I actually really like, they say you live and die by your number. If you make your number, you're a hero. If you miss your number, you're you're in big trouble and you may not get to keep your job. But I like that clarity and I think it makes things super, super clear as far as what the expectation is. I did struggle sometimes when you're going through a review if it's not super clear in the beginning. And I think, I think I, I've grown to like the, the clarity. And I think if you want to be accountable and you're comfortable with that, then actually it becomes really enjoyable. And I'd say in both roles, I think one of the things that, that I'm working on and what I needed to grow up with is you need to have people who support you in whichever role that you're in. And I, I don't mean just from a a mentorship support. If you're going to, you know, if you want to have trajectory in your course of your career, you need someone who will take a chance on you and support you. And, you know, if you're different or you're not the majority of what the organization looks to, then you may need some really strong support there. And and I'm really lucky to say that I had some really incredible male sponsors who did sponsor me, and I, I'm really grateful for that. So now that I'm learning from that, I'm trying to also support uh, different candidates in different roles and really back them. And I think it's, it's great to have people around you who are nice. Um, it's much better to have people around you that have courage and conviction and that will say things in the right rooms to really back you. And so I really, really, really appreciate right now is having um, transparency and, you know, conviction and assertiveness in those in those areas, because I think your career is really important. So um, the other piece that that I've learned, and I'm still working on this one, but understanding, you know, what your key question is. And when you get into a new role, there's always going to be a, a what if question. Um, and I think it's really important. You work with your leader to say, like, you're doing all these things great, but what are they really worried about you from taking that next step? And I, I used to shy away from that question. Um, and they, in some organizations, they call it like a key question in a talent review. Like, can Erin do this? Or can she adapt to do this, this role? And I think it's really good to understand that early on so that you can work to address it and understand what people think your limitation is so you can work on it. Because I know when I was a bit younger, I, I didn't really, I was a little bit scared to know what people were 
wondering about me. Um, and it takes a little bit of courage to ask that question. But if you know it, um, you can understand it, you can address it. Um, whether it's fair or not, it doesn't matter. It's someone else's perception. And I think, I think that's something as I've grown up a little bit, I kind of like am, I'm keen to understand that right away so I can help, help do that, help tackle that one. So, so a couple of things you, you spoke about. So this difference between men, like mentoring and sponsorship, which mm-hmm. I think is like super important because essentially yeah. the sponsor is the person that is talking about you when you're not in the room, right? They're the, yeah. they're the ones they're that are for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you said that you had um, the, the fortune of having some really good male sponsors in your career. Yeah. Did you proactively seek them out or like how did that even come about? Yeah, good question. Um, I think there there has to be something with affinity there. You 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 can <laughs> you can um, go find your sponsors and you can see on paper the right people that you want to get to know. But essentially, it's got to be there's got to be chemistry there, and they have to believe in your skill set. So I I think you know I I maybe don't have a sponsor at this moment in time, but it needs to be someone who a that you trust and be like, you may need to get to know them and they may need to see you be accountable for a year or two before they're ready to speak on your behalf. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of discussion about mentorship and sponsorship. You probably wouldn't ask someone to sponsor you, but I think you'd know in a few years or 18 months if this person, and and I think there's, there's good conversations to be had. um, But, but you need to know someone with courage and conviction. And I think, uh, I think that's sometimes where people get confused. And I think when I was a bit younger on, I, I also was like, oh, well, I have this amazing mentor that meets with me every week. Yes, that may be great. But will that person go against a CFO or a CEO and say, I actually want this person in the role because I believe in them. And, and that's what it may take. Um, so I think if you think about that uh, when you're looking for that person and you may need to prove to them over time that you're the right person that they should be supporting. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, um, about partnership. Yeah, it's the partnership. And it's also about track record and and demonstrating, you know, more than just what you say, but actually showing your potential. Um, And, you know, it's the the same in in any kind of recommendation referral type relationship, right? Like, nobody will go out on a limb to back someone if they, if they're not, as you say, if they don't have conviction that that person is going to be able to do yeah. it, even if they've never done it before, it's about having those, that key, I don't know, secret source to show that that person has a good chance of being successful. Um, what would you say, obviously, Striker, big player in, in orthopedics and, and Nuvasive is also a very well-known business. What would you say more from a leadership perspective? What do you need to be a successful leader in these types of organizations? Yeah. So I think these types of organizations that are market leading are, are looking at a few things. I think, number one, you need to be strategic um, and, a, and a good problem solver and a good thinker. You need to be accountable and I think, especially if you're in a commercial role, you need to show that you can deliver the right results. And I think as well, you need to be able to articulate, you know, when you can't deliver a result, why, and and to, you know, warn the financial people early so that, that you can get a plan B and plan C in place. Um, and I also believe these are bigger organizations and, and it's important that you're able to influence in a matrix and work cross-functionally with your peers. Um, and be able to help your business with good return on investments. And then I think the last thing, and it's probably the most important piece, is to generate trust 
you know, in your relationships and in the people that you manage and above and below. And I think, I think those are some of the key things as, you know, we become more matrix driven and, and more as the products become more available throughout the globe. I, I think those are kind of some of the key top of mind things that, that those organizations are looking for. Talk to me about um, how you go about influencing in matrix organization because we recruit for some of these matrix organizations and 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 by default you know the the org structure of that is pretty complex and um it's frequently a requirement of of the companies that that we recruit for you know that they say okay this person needs to be able to influence in a matrix in a heavily matrixed structure what does that actually mean in terms of what does it look like yeah good question yeah, I think it's a it's a certainly a buzzword that everyone says you need to be able to do, but to explain it is probably pretty difficult. So what that means to me is that you're able to be a respectful person, that you can have an opinion, um, and that you're able to translate your opinion with fact um, towards your colleagues, and they may agree or disagree with you, but you're able to get to an endpoint and solutions. Um, I think the second piece as well is that you're able to work in different geographies and different cultures um, and that you're able to be open-minded. Um, one of the pieces that, that really helped me, I believe, work across the matrix was having different roles. So I remember when I was in a global role, I was trying to get the countries to do what I wanted, right? I was trying to have you know, a strategic mindset and trying to influence I think when I was in a country role, I was trying to like get global to do what I wanted to do. So, and then when you're in a region role, you're trying to like, you're kind of stuck in the middle and trying to get both people on your side or both teams on your side. So I think one of the pieces that did help me was having different roles in each segment across the matrix and then understanding like, okay, well, last year when I was in a country role, I had that view. Now I'm putting on my region view and I'm going to have this view and at least, at least the understanding of how most what, what's the sentiment when you're in those places? Because I will say when you're speaking with a country, when you're in the region, they think, well, you sit at a desk all day. You're not really as close to the customers as we are. When you're in a global role, you know, they get all the, the big budgets and they get to fly around, but, and then they, they ask you to do things. So I think it's, it really comes down to influencing and managing your stakeholders above and below. I think also you need to have a a perspective where you're able to, you know, in my role, I need to, sometimes I may disagree with the strategy, but I'm toeing the line, right? And I think when you're in any role in a matrix, you need to be able to kind of be able to separate those two judgments, your opinion versus your leadership role. And um, I think that's another aspect of helping it. And I'd say the last part and um, a part that's super important is being able to be self-aware and being able to manage your emotions and your energy and being able to, you know, also I think it's hard in the matrix because there's lots of time zones. It's easy to send emails. It's hard to have open conversations, but to have the the courage to disagree, but in a polite way or to encourage, you know, the right endpoint. And I think it's easy to say and probably a little bit harder to do, but I think those are kind of the elements that make people a good cross-functional or, or matrix driven person. Mm. So I think, that's definitely um, really interesting and insightful, you know, when we talk about the matrix. You mentioned something um, around emotions there, and it just made me think of something, and, and I wanted to, to, to ask you. So, <laughs> do you find that as a female leader, there is a 
different approach when it comes to the emotional piece um when working with partners when leading your team you know yeah. is 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 it is it about leaning into that female leader supergirl thing or you know do you do you take a slightly different approach that maybe you know male leaders have inspired in you i'm interested in your perspective yeah. Oh boy! <laughs> Sorry, That's a loaded, loaded question, but a great question. Oh, okay. So I, I think where I'm at with this is it's easy to say lean into everything, um, and and I know a very respectful person wrote the book, and and I like I love the book. I also believe there's times that you need to lean out and and not to engage, right? And and I think for me the key is, and and I'm still figuring this one out. But I think the key is is to know when is the right timing to do each of those things. So, you know, there's going to be times when there's a big argument going on and you may want to get involved in that. And, and if you do, I think you have to decide to go heavy into it and come armed with your facts. And I still practice. I think being a woman, you have to be really careful to keep your tone low to stay calm and just to do the opposite of what people are expecting you to do. And I that might not be fair. Um, but it, it's reality and I, I'm working hard at that because I think it's important, um, to show that actually the opposite, um, perspective that actually there can be really good female leaders that are common and rational people that, that, that are really great in high stake environments. So, so I, I think about that a lot. Um, and then I think also there's, there's times when, you got to just not worry about it and, and say, I'm not going to get involved in this one. And and I don't mean just to be talking about arguments, but there's some things where you may le- really need to lean into it in a positive way. And and I think the opposite is true when you're talking about belief and engagement with people. I, I think I, I have some great staff who like working for me because I am emotional and because I believe in them and because they feel comfortable around me and they, you know, they, they enjoy, enjoy that part. And I, I think emotions are good um, so I think it's balancing those and, and I really, this may be a simplistic approach, but I, I do sincerely believe that like as a female, sometimes you get more criticism as it, and sometimes things work towards your, your way. And so I am a big believer that, you know, some surgeons will love engaging with me and some surgeons won't, but I think that is balanced. And so I think that helps me stay positive and, and really try and lead from the front and, and show positive examples for others. Um, and, and I, I think that's how I'm trying to approach it. So, um, basically being thoughtful, um, thinking before I open my mouth that this is something I want to engage in and then also not being afraid to show positive emotion. And, and I think a lot of times people, people, that's important to people. Mm, absolutely. I think, you know, ultimately everybody has their own style and, it's not really the way that I see it is it's not overly a gender a gendered thing right it's mm-hmm. more about understanding kind of like what is your style and what is working for you and also kind of like and then leaning into that you know so whatever yeah. whatever your style is finding it and then leaning into that um coming back to something you spoke really early on about which was about encouraging so I forgot exactly how you said it but it was almost like encouraging people to give you feedback on maybe what is a concern they might have about you or or, exactly so so that's a really courageous thing to do because you know most people don't like being criticized um so how has that helped you in your career do you have like an example of a time where that's been actually really insightful Mm -hmm. I do um 
Yeah, I'm just thinking of how I can share the example. Yeah, I actually have an example, and I won't share the specifics of it. Oh. Um, but but I will share the principle of it. So I um I heard some feedback about myself from somebody else, and 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 that from actually from from someone who I worked with a peer, and it's it's hard enough to get feedback from your direct manager, but at times it's worse when it comes through a different route. So I, I was a little bit disheartened about that. And I thought, shoot, I, I, my first comment was like, well, why didn't they pick up the phone and talk to me about this? Mm-hmm. And I think what I noticed is that it's also hard for the manager to give open feedback, right? And so I tried to have some empathy around that. And then I waited consciously about a month because I was a bit sensitive about it. And then when the time was right and I was in a good place on one of the one-to-ones, I kind of said, hey, I, I heard this. It may or may be wrong. Do you agree? And I tried to have a constructive conversation about it. Um, and it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was. Okay. Because we were pretty tough on ourselves. And it was actually one of those things where I thought that it really is how someone perceives you or a situation that may or may be wrong or right. But ultimately, it's their perception, right? Mm-hmm. So if I perceived in one way and I, I don't believe it or I do believe it, ultimately, I may not want to be perceived in that way. So I, I realized that I needed to course correct a little bit. And by just having the conversation, which was really hard for me, but, but I did it and it was uncomfortable, but I actually kind of had a laugh and said, you know what? Thank you very much. Um, I can see actually how you would see that. I said, actually, I was actually really nervous in this regard and it probably didn't come out the right way. And, you know, just having that conversation with someone, I think, I think they appreciated it. And I, I I felt like I hit it head on. and, And I think those are good conversations to have with people. Because the alternative was for me to be upset about it and then never confront the person and then be angry like five years later and wonder why like we didn't understand each other. So maybe a really tiny example, but I think the more clarity you get and the, what I've learned is the better questions you can ask and not make assumptions right away. A lot of times it's in like, did you mean that or what did you mean when you said this, this and that? Because usually it's very easy for us to jump to conclusions and, and jump, in, you know, I'm, I'm a sensitive flower. So it's easy to think, think that someone is criticizing me when really they, maybe they're not. So, so I've tried to dig a little bit deeper in those painful areas and learn before I, and then, and then have some absorption time before, before, you know, you don't always need to get back to someone right away. You can say, you know what, I just need to digest this and I'm, I'm going to think about it and get back to you. And, and that's perfectly fine. I think that's really, that's really interesting. And it just builds on kind of like your self-awareness as well, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think the more information you have around how you're perceived, I think gives you power because it gives you the ability to almost go into a conversation with somebody knowing already how they might perceive you. And as you said, yeah. kind of like course correct or preempt something, um, you know, I think that that's, that that's critical. The example that you gave, you were kind of, mm. obviously you kind of overheard something or I don't know, it came to you yeah. in a roundabout way. But yeah. how could, I mean, how could I proactively, if I'm brave enough, how could I proactively go out and actually get that feedback? Yeah, I think, I think building trust. I think when you build trust with your manager, others, I, I, I think you get there over time. And, and I think there needs to be a comfort level. And it's hard to get over the phone. You know, we're all we're all um, in different geographies some days, and that makes it harder. But I think having the courage to say, hey, I think I'm doing these three things really well. I'm kind of struggling with these three things. Is this, do you see the parallels? Are you in alignment? And, and to help, you know, come prepared to those one-to-ones 
and just say, is there anything that you think I can be doing better? And really just to make it easy mm-hmm. to show that A, you're open to it and B, um, that you show up with an awareness that you do want to continue to learn and grow and even say like, what do you think is getting in my way of being even more effective? And, and I think you can ask good questions and I think you'll get abundance of good information back. And, and I think when you approach it in that way, um, that it will be thoughtful feedback coming back. And, and that's what we all want. And I, I guess there are 360s out there and there's other elements and different ways to do things, but, but I always feel like speaking at best and, and to promise yourself when you go into those situations, when you're being a bit vulnerable, that, you know what, it's, it's amazing and courageous and that you will take something away that will make you better. And that's pretty great. And if you can learn to do that in the early days of your career, then, then good on you. It's going to serve you for the rest of your, your journey. And these are great questions as well, because like you said, they're like totally non-confrontational type questions. It's not like, oh, I heard you said this about me. So justify yourself. But it's more kind of like, you know, having as a base this kind of like um, want for continuous self-improvement, which is super important. So these are great questions. So just to recap them for the, the people who are listening, what can I be doing better is one that yeah. I love. And what was the other one? <laughs> I've forgotten by now. I think the other one was you know, is there anything that you see getting in my way of, of, of me being even more effective in my role? Is there any, you know, I guess that's a different way of saying what's your key question, but is there anything you see that, that I'm not doing that could I, I could be even more effective with? Yeah, 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 yeah. These are great questions. So you mentioned here, and this is, I guess, an example of, you know, a manager, employee relationship. What are your thoughts on getting that feedback from your team as a manager? Is that something you would proactively seek out as well or...? Yeah. Um, yes, I think it's it's super important when you're managing people to get feedback. And I I try and be really approachable for that. I try and leave my door open. Um, I think the higher leadership role that you have, the more the less willing people are to give you feedback. And I think probably the more important it is. So I really take the engagement um, engagement surveys really seriously. And I hope that I hire people that challenge me. Um, and I, I think my team does a lot, so that's good. But you, you really want a good team around you who could say like, you really messed that up, Aaron, or you should do better, <laughs> because that that meet that's a sign of a good team, right? When you can be ruthlessly honest. And I, I do believe like if you look at the Formula One teams, um, there's like a no bullshit policy on on being honest because safety is at risk. And I see in some regards what we do with patients, you know, in a similar fashion. So I hope that I'm open to feedback, and I hope that my team will bring it to me as much as possible. And, and I think it's also important to carve out times where you can kind of let loose a little bit and have real, you know, maybe have a, a glass of wine and have a good conversation about, you know, that sort of piece. I think, I think it's important. Mm-hmm. And so kind of, we've spoken a lot about like business Erin and oh, yeah. Erin. I mean, I'm interested in a little bit more kind of work-life balance. Is that something that yeah. you believe in or how do you manage it? It is. And I think the older I get, the more important it becomes. Um, Balance is different for everybody. So I try and not make assumptions about what certain people need in their life. But I know for me, um, I'm really committed in the mornings to working on my balance. So I I have a little routine that I do every day. Sometimes I slip off the wagon, but I try and kind of exercise and, and do some meditation of just silence for 20 minutes I'm so into morning routines right now like I'm just fascinated by understanding what people do because I really think that it it has a direct impact on your success 
like yeah. in that day. I, Talk me through I it. Does too. Um, what time so do you wake up? I wake up at uh, 5.45 and then I try and run from 6 to 6.30. And, and then I sit down for, I stretch a little bit, have some lemon water, um, light some candles. And then I, I think for a little bit, for about 30 minutes, I really try not to look at my phones as far as like emails and stuff. And I try and also watch something inspiring or, or uh, read something that, that I love that has like empathy and, and love connected to it. Um, and then I get ready and, and head to work and then try and do more, you know, um, I also try and pull in like the little, I love the little economist espresso and I try and read that on my way to work, but, um, I'm not perfect. And I, I slip off sometimes, you know, when you're traveling and you're in different time zones, but I do find it's like something that really keeps me grounded. And I love, uh, essential oils and teas and, and maybe I think each year I'm getting a little bit more, uh, cuckoo. But I love I love that stuff because it's a reminder of, you know, me feeling good. And I think whatever you can do to make yourself feel good when you're, you know, before and after work and, and taking I take 20 minutes um, to try and meditate at work. Like I go in a, and, and that might just be like putting myself in a closet and just not thinking for a bit or going for a walk or whatever you like. But it's so easy these days just to look at your phone and have incessant message and, and answering and talking all day that I think it's super important. So. And I try and embrace what other people have as their importance and must have. Um, but, but I would say it is a journey and it's a battle to fight for that little piece of 30 minutes. Or I guess my routine is actually kind of long now. It's about an hour and a half in the morning, but um, without getting ready for work. But it, I, I love it. it. It grounds me and it makes me feel good. It's so it's so interesting, especially um, the meditation piece, especially now that mental well-being is such a kind of there's so much more awareness around mental well-being and and I'm thankfully seeing companies really starting to take that seriously and to mm-hmm. invest not only in their employees kind of technical understanding and career development but also in their mental well-being we did a, a wellness week here at LMEDS oh. and um, we had like 10 minutes of meditation every morning before you know as a group right and at the beginning everyone was kind of like I don't know where are you going with this <laughs> but um, you know the, the whole thing around like don't open your emails you know focus on on that for the 10 minutes you know get your head right and then jump in um, I have to say that everybody said that it had a positive impact and mm-hmm. really um they felt more calm just generally during the day and, and kind of more ready for, for the day and to handle difficult, stressful situations. And then the other thing as well, you speak about um, meditating for 20 minutes um, at work. Yeah. I was speaking to an executive the other day who was telling me about how he likes to try to take power naps for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's, that's really, um, it's really something that I think, you know, I speak to a lot of people and everybody has their little kind of quirks mm-hmm. and, and things that things that work for them. Have you got any more secrets? <laughs> oh God, I <laughs> help. Okay, not, not, not all your secrets, but, you know, to, um, to help more effective. Yeah, there's like a little room in our office that's a lactation room. And I, I don't have a baby right now, but it's really like the perfect room to just go inside and just sit where no one knows where you are. And um, I, I love it in there. I brought candles in and it's, it's a pretty good spot. So I, I think um, just also being able to say to people, like, I, I just need some space or any time. Um, I know it used to be really cool not to sleep and to be tough. Um, and I, I think science is proving the opposite. So, um, you know, trying to find the right balance of maintaining your energy and, and some people have to sleep many, much more than others, but I, I do love sleeping and, and I'm proud of that. Um, and I think maybe 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't have admitted that out loud, but, but just taking care of yourself. It's a, it's a long, it's a, your career is a long journey and the better you feel and the better you show up every day is, is super important.
Absolutely. So I think um, another question, I guess, which is like the big one. No, before we go there, before we go there, because there's one question I haven't, I haven't asked actually. What regrets do you have? Hmm. Oh, a lot. Uh, maybe not a lot. I think I have a few. I regret that um, I did really want to potentially be a doctor and, and, and go down that pathway. And, and I did do my MCATs and I did did average on them and my grades were quite good. I, I regret probably not. I think I was too scared that I wouldn't have enough money or that I wouldn't get a job. I, I think I, I think my biggest regret in my life is, is maybe letting fear drive you instead of passion. Um, and I think it's a natural thing to do. I think that's part of me wanting to be accountable is that I was never going to let someone else have to help me if, if things didn't go right. Um, but I think if I can learn from that in the future, kind of letting the good stuff drive you instead of the what ifs driving you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in that regard, I probably would have maybe hung in a little bit longer and had a little bit more patience with some of the things that I loved. Mm-hmm. But also like making sure that like it's you're doing by possibility and not fear, I think is a, is a really yeah. important message. And um, if you could, if you could talk back to yourself then at the age of, I don't know, 21, although you look 21 now, so. (laughs) (laughs) But if you could back, you you know, what, um, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I think that you don't need to do everything at once, that there's lots of love for you and that you can let your passions drive you and that good things will happen. I, I think when I was a little bit younger, I was probably maybe use time too much to, to make certain decisions and do certain things. I think, you know, as you get older, you realize that, that there's a lot, lots of time in life and that you should enjoy every moment. Um, and I think in university, I felt like I entered a little bit late. So I felt pressure to like, you know, I wasn't even sure if I was literally And this will sound funny, but when I was cha- choosing my major, like I was remember being in the lineup of school and it wasn't that I wasn't an academic or I wasn't a smart person, but I remember being like, well, do I like biology or chemistry? Maybe I should combine them. But I, I had no idea. And I, I think not being ashamed to say that you don't know what's going on, because most people at 20 don't know or 18 don't know. And take gap year and travel. Like there's so much goodness and difference out in the world that I think, you know, be a holistic growth person and, and learn and and do what serves you and what makes you feel good. I think I think probably I rushed into things a little bit and, and maybe took myself a bit too seriously. Mm. So having a continuous growth mindset and slowing down, yeah. I think is is super important. I, I, I was doing a, for our exceptional women in medtech content series that we did. Yeah. Um, that was the the same advice that mm, Kristen Presner, she's the VP of HR at Roche Diagnostics. Uh, it was the same thing that she said. It, it was like slow down <laughs> yeah. uh, because, because I think it, it is that when you're young, you know, you constantly feel like you're running out of time and that you need to do everything immediately right now. And yeah. um, it's, it's important to breathe and to just take a step back and also sometimes look behind you and see how far you've come. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think as well, it's good to fail and it's good to fail early and it's good to make mistakes. I mean, you learn way more making mistakes and, and I, I will say I'm grateful for all the different roles I got to have because I, you know, there's very few days that I could say I really knew what I was doing and had it all under control. But how great is that to be able to have the autonomy to learn and to, you know, take it all in. So I think sometimes there's pressure out there to be perfect or, or show to the outside world that you've got it all together. And, and you know, most of us don't. We're all doing the best we can. And, and just to be um, to be thoughtful of that. So big question. So what's the legacy that you want to leave on the world? Oh, wow. Um, big question. I hope that I can leave the world with 
a lot of treasured and trusted relationships, um, an honest heart, and someone who really loved um, and treated people well and, and did good things. I think um, I think that's ultimately what's what what's most important. Well, I think that's that. You know, ultimately, that's that's what it is to be human, right? You know, it's to have yeah. those relationships and to and to go on these these journeys and and develop these relationships over time and have an impact in that way. You know, because and and that's why you know I'm so thankful that you came onto this podcast because you know what I see about this is something you you have said today might just change someone's career path. You know, might just change the way that someone thinks about themselves or about their journey. And it's really about you know having an impact with the people that you know personally and with whom you have those relationships but it's it's also now even with technology the impact that you can have outside of that is also huge so thank you so much Erin I feel like we could talk for ages and continue that I still have another I might need to get you back for a part two okay <laughs> but, um... there you go you <laughs> good questions I was uh, they're deep ones thank <laughs> you <laughs> thank you very much Elena so thank you Erin McEachern for being part of Career Diaries by Elamed and to all of you lovely people who are listening don't forget to like share subscribe let us know what you think and until the next time have a lovely day and bye-bye <laughs>